Uh, sometimes I wonder why I uh, don't sometimes take the easy route, which this morning would have been to either pass over this passage of Scripture altogether or loop it together with the two that came before it and create one little package out of that which would have been acceptable, or to simply say, uh, employers, be nice to your employees, employees, uh, pay attention and respect your employers. But we're going a little bit different route. 400 years ago in the year 1619, a ship carrying about 20 Africans who had been seized from another ship, a Portuguese pirate ship in the Caribbean. That ship arrived in Jamestown, Virginia with those 20 or so Africans becoming the first known slaves in the English colonies. Fast forward 240 years. By the start of the Civil War in 1861, almost 600,000 slaves had been brought in chains from Africa to the United States. And yet that number, 600,000, represented only 5%, only 5% of all the Africans who had been brought in chains across the Atlantic Ocean to the countries in North America, Central America, and South America, and the Caribbean. By the start of the Civil War, the number of people of African descent in the United States had grown to more than four million, with 90% of those people still being enslaved, including women and children. There were times in American history, such as during the First and Second Great Awakenings, these religious Christian awakenings, that Christians spoke up loudly against the practice of slavery and at other times lobbied just for better treatment of slaves. But for far too long, Christians in America capitulated to the practice of slavery, with many even embracing understandings of the scriptures and of Christianity that supported slavery with some exceptions being the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church denominations, which actually ended up splitting all of them over the matter, some being quite concerned, others wanting to perpetuate the institution of slavery in America. In fact, the Presbyterian Church, our denomination, didn't even get back together again until 1983. That division lasted more than 120 years. Though all slaves in the United States were eventually declared to be free by Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and then slavery eventually being abolished by the ratification by the states of the 13th Amendment to our Constitution in 1865, only after the conclusion of what remains the most gruesome and deadliest war in U.S. history against ourselves over the issue of slavery. We are still grappling with, as a nation, with the poisonous residue of literally centuries of white people owning black people. And in some ways, our country is just as divided as ever, and in some other ways, our country is more divided than ever around and about this issue. And some of us ask ourselves, how can this possibly 
have come about in a Christian nation or in a nation that at least had its genesis in a community of people who moved across the Atlantic in order to be able to express their faith, to live out their faith, their Christianity, their following Jesus freely and according to their conscience. How could this ever have happened? While there were eventually plenty of white Christians who actively sought the abolition of the institution of slavery in the United States, much of the primarily white church in America either looked the other way with regard to slavery or was actively complicit in this industry and the continuation of slavery, condoning it, supporting it, participating in it, profiting from it, protecting it. And again, one asked oneself, how could this ever have come about? In the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. And as the apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet the words of scripture also offer us hope. When God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then hundreds of years later, along comes Jesus. And as we've read in Colossians that God has come to literally dwell in us in Christ and through Christ, we are helped now in putting on the person and the virtues of Christ in all that we do and say and all that we are. His compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility. Patience, bearing with each other, forgiving one another, and wrapping all of those things in divine love. There is hope for a new day in Christ. As Jesus is recorded, in, uh, recorded as saying in the book of Revelation, I am making all things new. He is making all things new. He continues to be redeeming restoring, healing, reconciling. He has and he will make all things new. And with that as our confidence and also our hope, and really our only hope, my only hope, let's pray. And let's stand together. Would you stand with me? If you're able. Help us, God, to be attentive to you, to your word, to your will, and to your way. Forgive our past. Heal. Give us new hearts made not out of stone, but out of flesh. Bring about your kingdom. Through your word. Amen. So we're continuing this morning our study of the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Christians in the ancient church or the ancient city of Colossae, uh, this book in the Bible known simply as Colossians. Coming out of his own radically transformative encounter with the risen and living Jesus, Paul begins his letter to the Colossians with praise and gratitude and then Paul describes and clarifies who Jesus is, who the Christ was. How God's fullness dwelt in and fully embodied Jesus. How Jesus was and remains the center of all of creation. The one through whom things were founded. The one around whom things spin. The one through whom all things hold together. 
the one for whom things were created and through whom things were created, and how God then graciously reconciled and is reconciling all things, all people, all of creation to himself through Jesus, his blood shed on a cross. And then Paul goes on to describe how the reality of Christ and the power of Christ in people's lives changes those people and can change us. And this transforming power inevitably, inevitably affects every aspect of a person's life, including one's relationships, and especially one's primary relationships and closest relationships, which is where life is really lived. And the place or the arena or the forum or the environment where we really live out our faith. And so to this end, Paul wrote to the Colossians about how a relationship between wives and husbands who are in Christ will be fundamentally different than what was normative at the time, and about how relationships between children and parents who are in Christ will be fundamentally different than those of those who are not in Christ. And this morning we read what Paul wrote about another common and key relationship in the extended household of first century Palestine, Israel, that between slaves and their masters and how those were to look and how those would look for and with and among people who are in Christ. And now to that end, listen to what Paul wrote beginning at chapter 3, verse 22 of his letter to the Christians in Colossae, the young church, the still learning, growing, maturing church. This is the word of God. This is what that relationship looks like. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And what jumps out most to modern readers on the 400th anniversary of the beginning of slavery in the United States is that Paul does not condemn the practice of slavery. Paul here does not condemn the institution or the practice of slavery, which, in, which is enough to turn off many readers of the scriptures and to cause many today to turn away and throw out Christianity altogether as an antiquated religion of and for and from. People who regularly and even systematically have oppressed other people. And such a narrative is understandable if we look back over history. And yet, there's more to this story than just this. And as you know and remember, context is critical. Let's say that together. Context is critical. Context is always important. We don't always read the Bible literally. We don't always read the Bible metaphorically. But we always read the Bible contextually. In its context. We must. And so throughout the ancient world, and even to some degree among Jews in the ancient world, various forms of slavery were practiced widely. That's the context. It's also true that slavery, as it would have been known by the people of Colossae, and even practiced by some of the people of Colossae, including those who had recently come to faith in Jesus, 
and were young and growing in their faith, the slavery with which they would have been familiar was not at all like the monolithic and often cruelly practiced institution of slavery with which we are familiar in American history. Instead, slavery in and around Colossae and two Colossians would have looked different in a variety of ways. Then and there, slavery was not primarily racial. One race of people enslaving another entire race of people, including all of the inherent racism that would have gone along with that. Instead, slaves would have been from a number of different races, including one's own race, even Jews. Second, some of those who would have been looped in the category of slave would have actually been bond servants, for example, who had failed to pay their debts and so were required to work for another person until he or she had paid off the debts that he or she had incurred in that way. Third, there were also among those categorized as slaves people who had willingly contracted with another person as a sort of indentured servanthood for a period of time because that person had no education and no other means of caring for themselves, living, being on one's own. And while a slave owner or head of a household may have had absolute power and authority over any such person under his roof and could have treated them however they liked, Paul, who identified himself as a voluntary slave of Christ, yes, had guidance for them. But still one may ask, why did Paul zealously not condemn the practice of slavery, or at least the worst forms of slavery? Why didn't Paul speak up against it here? Paul was certainly interested in seeing the world changed, in seeing people changed, in seeing God's kingdom come. But the way in which Paul understood that the kingdom of God would come was not from the outside in, but rather from the inside out. Paul understood that the inward always leads to the outward, but the outward doesn't always lead to the inward. And therefore, his MO was to see Christ formed in a person. In other words, by inviting Christ into one's life and by putting on Christ and the things of Christ, and one's outward life would inevitably follow and reflect Christ. In addition, and differently, Paul's mission was not to completely disrupt the social structures of his day because he knew that if he were to attempt to do so directly, that the gospel and the church would only be further ostracized and condemned as an insurrectionist movement. There were already rumors about Christians being about the abolition of slavery. There were already rumors about Christians' strange behavior, about them not willing to participate in the entertainment common in their culture of that day. There were already rumors about Christians allowing men and women to be equal in various ways. Paul's mission was not to completely disrupt the social structures of his day because he didn't want to shut the world off from the gospel, which is why Paul wrote in another letter to a young man named Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Do you follow? What Paul wanted more than anything else was for the gospel to be proclaimed for the gospel to be proclaimed 
and received because Paul believed, as he wrote to the Romans, the gospel, this news, this message, this great news about Jesus. Paul wrote to the Romans that the gospel has the power to bring salvation to everyone who believes. And we must understand salvation there to be comprehensive and so including salvation from slavery as it had meant and been for the Hebrew people being liberated from slavery in Egypt. That was the Jews' primary salvation event. Are you with me? And so for Paul, salvation was manifest in manifold ways in a person's life, not limited to, but certainly including one's relationships. And Paul addresses first slaves who, just as with wives and children in that culture, had up to that point not any rights, or even in some cases it was thought, ability to make moral decisions beyond simple obedience. But Paul addresses them as full moral beings, thus giving to these less powerful people in that culture dignity and respect, recognizing the moral agency and the decision-making power that they had been given by God in contrast to the normative, normative ways of their culture at that time. Slaves, obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Don't cut corners. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be, will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. And what applied to slaves applies to all of us who are employees today. Do what your boss or your supervisor says to do as long as it's legal, ethical, moral, and doesn't hurt anyone. Some people will only work hard or well or intently when their boss is looking. But slack off otherwise and don't do a good job otherwise. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> Paul says not to be like that because that dishonors one's boss, but it also negatively affects oneself. But even more than that, such work or lack of work or laziness dishonors the Lord to whom and for whom we ultimately labor. Remember, as Paul said earlier in Colossians, all things are for Jesus. Our work, our jobs, the tasks we are to do are to be to him and for him. Your job is not to make money. Your job is to honor the Lord Jesus who gave you that job. How we do what we do is more about one's service to the Lord than it is about our service to a company or a boss or an organization. Quote, it is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. Paul says in verse 24, and this is a complete reorientation of why a person gets a job, goes to work. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. What one does for a living, including the terms of one work and the, one's work and the social contracts involved, are secondary to one's work being done in a way that honors the Lord, period. It is the Lord you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. Yesterday, Karen and I were uh, on the sidelines of one of our kids' soccer games, watching, cheering, being uh, really good citizens. And right behind us, just a couple of feet behind us, 
were some evil, terrible parents, two, uh, two men from the, uh, from the opposing team. And the, we'll call him Father One, was talking to Father Two about all of the things he brings home from work, kind of sneaks out of work, all of the supplies and resources that he takes from work and that he gives to his friends and his neighbors who love him for it. And he says to Father Number Two, I can get you all kinds of stuff from the firehouse, all kinds of things that you could use. And I'm just thinking, oh man, this is not what Paul was thinking. But Paul wrote, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. But Paul not only writes to slaves, remembering that heads of households had absolute power and authority over those under their roofs, Paul also writes directly to masters. How dare he? Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. A master could have done whatever he wanted with his slaves. He could have treated them however he wanted. That was his legal right. But Paul commands masters to provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Be good to them. Take care of them. And this part of Paul's teaching was revolutionary, though it doesn't jump out at us in that way when we read it today. It was unheard of to call a social superior to respect and treat fairly a social inferior. But Paul calls masters to treat their slaves kindly, remembering that you too have a master in heaven. Which echoes the refrain we read over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember Hebrew people. Remember people of God that you yourselves were once slaves in Egypt. And which calls us to remember the interconnectedness and the reciprocal nature of the spiritual life and really all of life when you think about it. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Having been enemies of God yourself, love your enemies. One's relationship with God, if it is authentic and true, is eventually and inevitably embodied in one's relationships with others. And one's relationship with others reflects one's relationship with God. That's just the way it is. We also have a master in heaven. We are subject to a master. To be a Christian and a follower of Jesus is to be subject to the teacher who is also Lord, to understand ourselves as servants and even voluntary slaves of the one who is good and the one who is king. But there's also this interesting backstory to Paul with regard to slaves and masters, and it's, I think it's important that we understand it, know it, see it. Paul goes into much greater detail. He writes m many more words when addressing slaves than he does masters, when addressing slaves than he does wives or husbands or children or parents. And the same is true in the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Paul's instructions or guidance or commands to slaves are much longer than they are to any other group. And scholars believe there's a reason for this. One of the people with Paul as he's writing this letter, as we'll see in chapter four, is someone named Onesimus, who happened to be a slave of some sort 
and who seemed to be a runaway slave or an AWOL indentured servant or an MIA bond servant belonging to a brother in Christ in Colossae named Philemon. Onesimus has at some point come to faith in Christ and also come somehow to be with Paul. Though Onesimus legally belongs to Philemon or is indentured to Philemon. And so Paul will send Onesimus back to Philemon. It was the legal thing to do, but Paul appeals to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus with these words in his letter to Philemon. Therefore, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you in Christ to do what you ought to do, in other words, to be kind to or to forgive Onesimus, or more than that, better than that, to release, to free Onesimus from slavery. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now, as a, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And so in his letter to Colossians, Paul doesn't want to be heard as someone who is inciting slaves to leave their posts. As someone who is inciting a rebellion among the slaves who outnumbered the citizens in many parts of the Roman Empire. But Paul clearly believes in the Lord that slavery is not God's intention and not God's best for people. In the seventh chapter of his letter to, his first letter to the Corinthians, expecting the return of Jesus soon, Paul tells all people, he says, remain in the state or the status or the place in the world and in your life and in your, your culture and your society that you are. If possible, remain where you are, as you are. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. If you're a slave, remain a slave. To the church in Corinth, uh, Paul wrote, wanting people to focus first on their relationship with Christ. But he writes, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Paul's not about to upset the whole apple cart of the Roman Empire and be thrown in prison forever, uh, squashing the Christian movement. But it's clear between the lines. If you can get your freedom, do so. And so Paul did not explicitly seek to abolish slavery or the practice of bonded servanthood. While he did not, God did use him to create a revolution that put all people on the same plane of equality before God, of mutual submission in Christ, of dignity for all, and respect for everyone. Should we therefore be concerned about slavery in the world today? Absolutely. Our world is different than Paul's world. The church, Christianity, the gospel has in many ways come from being a small movement that could have been completely squashed to the dominant religion of our culture and our country and the world. And therefore, with that voice and with that power and with that authority comes responsibility. The modern slavery statistics are astounding, are sobering, are frightening, are tragic. Some say there are more slaves today 
around the world in various places of different sorts than there ever have been before in history. Counting children who work in factories, women and girls and boys who have been made into sex traffickers or slaves in that way. All around the world, in this culture, in those cultures, slavery remains prevalent. Let's call her Evelyn. Evelyn's been cutting my hair for a number of years now. She came to the United States from the Philippines with a promise of a job and of being paid so many hundreds of dollars a month to work in a home in Hillsborough, known by a relative of hers. She arrives, goes to work, seven days a week, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., no days off, doesn't get paid what she was promised, has her passport taken from her, and is threatened to be turned in as an illegal immigrant if she tries to run away for two years. Slavery of sorts happens still today in the Bay Area, in our community, in Hillsborough. It was a delight for us and a pleasure for us to partner with She Is Safe several years ago during Lent. To be a part of the freeing of young girls in Asia who had been made into sex slaves and whose lives had been put on that course of destruction. We can still do that. You can still do that. At Christmas, we'll sing a hymn. When we get to that hymn this year, I want you to remember verse 3. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. O holy night. Jesus came to defeat sin. He came to destroy deeds done in darkness. In Christ and through Christ, God has begun a great redeeming, restoring, reconciling, healing work. And as we put on Christ, as we daily seek first his kingdom and are attentive to his voice and seek to walk in his steps and clothe ourselves in him, God will do that. God will bring that about. Sometimes it may mean us stepping up Stepping in, making sacrifices, being committed to a long obedience in the same direction, as was the case with William Wilberforce in England, who for much of his adult life fought in Parliament, labored, fought, worked for the abolition of slavery there, which happened decades before the abolition of slavery here. He Wilberforce doing that because Christ was in him and he was in Christ. Put on the new self, Paul wrote, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Jesus' vision of a kingdom does not include oppression. It brings the high down low and raises up those who are in positions of inferiority in our culture and makes us one family in Christ, uniting us to himself through Christ. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, rich or poor, white or black, male or female, educated or uneducated, criminal record or no criminal record, and on down the line. This is Jesus' vision of God's kingdom. May it come about here and around us and through us for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Forgive our past, heal our present, redeem our future. Be honored and glorified in us and among us and through your church. Make us one as you are one, God. May your church be about justice and may your church be about peace. And may your church be about righting the wrongs of the past and loving those who are oppressed. Teach us to care for one another. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen.